Welcome to Diggin' the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways to bring these 2,500-year-old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the online Dharma Institute. And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher and teacher trainer and founder of Space to Meditate. Good morning, Doug. How are you? I'm doing all right, John. How are you? Doing just fine, other than these uh, allergies and talking too much, you know. But <laughs> everybody says allergies are so much worse this yeah. year. I don't know if that's true or if it's just an age thing. But uh, <laughs> Fortunately, I've been able to escape them so far, knock on wood. Uh, my dad has them very badly, or always has. But Give it another few years. Yeah. Yeah, so that's all good. And I, I, I'm heading out to Colorado next week, and maybe it'll be better out there. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought today, uh, you know, I've, I've just been getting a little ruffled by, put it kindly, by, you know, political dialogue these days. Yeah. And, you know, how and why is it impossible for, uh, it seems, for people to get so angry over things I mean, I can see getting angry, but can you speak? Is it possible to speak in a way that actually accomplishes something instead of creates more um, division? Yeah. And, you know, I just thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit more. We've talked about this in the past, but talking more about why speech and how we speak and, you know, what would it be like if the, if the world were just a little bit quieter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the Buddha had a lot to say about well, he didn't have a lot to say, but he had some very powerful things to say about speech and how we speak. And yeah. it's a big part of the precepts and it's a big part of practice, both the way we speak and the way we listen. Yeah. And it's so, I, I think, exacerbated by a lot of what we see online because it's so easy online to say things in a harsh way. Because there's no face behind it, you can hide behind anonymity and mm. either a complete anonymity or just a false name of some kind. And even if it's not a false name, there's no face behind it. You don't get the, you certainly don't get any of the the nuance of the voice, which uh, usually is not a good thing. Uh, I mean, you <laughs> might say, "Well, it doesn't really matter." Well, it does. Yeah, you you find that it does. I think online. And I just, you know, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, I mean, this is a great topic. And today, I've, I've, I'm actually in the same situation, not politically, but, you know, uh, a comment on one of my videos. Uh, you know, some guy, and this happens relatively rarely, frankly. It happens every once in a while, though. And it's not being very charitable in how, you know, they respond to, you know, the fact that I might not agree with them. In other words, that they that they have a different point of view. And so, right. they're... Their comment is just, you know, that I must be, you know, doing what I'm doing for commercial reasons, you know, (laughs) as though, you know, having a non-standard view of of Buddhism is somehow (laughs) the route to to wealth and and power. I mean, it's just absurd. I don't know, Doug. I see you over there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's really, you know, and then, you know, and, and you know, he sort of went on and on about this. And, you know, it's just, you know, can you have a little bit of... (laughs) <laughs> you know, understanding of a, that the fact that people don't agree with you necessarily without assuming well, that they're, you know, I don't know, wh- without assuming the worst of people, let me put it that way. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like we generally, you know, 
when we are reacting to someone or, or when we are reacting to something that someone says, we're only reacting to that moment of yeah. what is said. And we're not taking in anything else, especially that that we don't know about another being. Yeah. You know, and, and what brought them to say the causes and conditions basically of what brought them to say what they said at that moment. And so this person who wrote to you when he listened to your pot, your uh, video, who knows what his state of mind was when he listened to it, right? Yeah. And he was reacting from that. We, it, It's so often that we speak not from <clears throat> what we're hearing, but from something else that came before, you know, whatever our emotional state was before we arrived. So that's one aspect of things. But the other, you know, the other is just this unwillingness to that, that so many people have that's created the divisiveness in this country anyway, and elsewhere, I should say, you know, that there's an unwillingness to listen to another side, mm -hmm. to listen to another being, you know, in an open-hearted way. Yeah. Right. It's, it's this, uh, th these tendencies that have become so, you know, embedded in, in people that as they are listening to somebody speak, they have already decided that that person is wrong or they have already, you know, they've already put that person in a particular place as opposed to really listening or they've already, they're already creating their argument, yeah, which, you know, is just there. So it's like at that point we've stopped listening. And you make assumptions about the other person, yeah. you know, and that's, that's part of not listening is just that you, you hear one word and then you or you know, one sentence and you already assume a million things. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of funny where where I am right now. There's one of the big issues is affordable housing. You know, you might say, okay, I you know I have an sort of intuitive understanding of who will be opposed to affordable housing and who will not. But you find when you actually meet with people that you know what your assumptions are may have completely nothing to do with the facts. Hmm. You know, so somebody who. Uh, for example, is extremely liberal, uh, left wing, has all kinds of posters up in his place of business, espousing left wing things. And then, you know, they're going to build affordable housing, you know, half a mile away and he's opposed to it, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, I mean, I had not expected that, you know, and it's not just that he's opposed to it, it's he goes and argues for against it, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, so this all, you know, and it's like, when you deal with people a little closer where you can see them and actually interact with them as, as individuals, as people, you begin to, to realize that, you know, people are all different and, and, you know, and oftentimes I think on the news, with, which is what we're bombarded with every day, we're bombarded with the the extreme example, the, the, the cartoon example of the person on the other side. Mm. And these are often played by very, very famous people. And I don't know what their real beliefs are, frankly. Um, and it is true that a lot of them do do that because they're making a lot of money doing it. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, legitimately, they're making a huge amount of money doing it. You know, they, they are there playing that extreme role. And so, when you see somebody who espouses one of their views, you sort of assume that they hold to all of them. All of their views, yeah. Uh, what was his name on Fox News? Um, oh. Uh, <laughs> How soon we forget, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you mean uh, uh, 
Yes, him. Yeah, him. He who shall be he who shall not be named. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you see somebody who yeah. says who agrees with one of his views, and you assume that they that they accept Tucker all of Carlson. Tucker, Tucker Carlson. Thank you. <laughs> and and it's not necessarily true. Right. I mean, that's yeah, but that's. Uh, yeah, and and you know it's very easy for Tucker Carlson to say whatever he wants because he doesn't have anybody sing, sitting across from him, literally, right? You know, to refute him, or yeah. you have people, you know, just ignoring the truth. So there's obviously, I mean, you know, the the first part of the the teachings on right speech, of course, is speak the truth, and you know, when when you have people that believe there are more than there can be several truths about the, a fact, you know, then, then it's like, then we get in trouble. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I only believe the truth that supports my view, right? As opposed to the truth that might support another view or the real truth. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what's so interesting about your neighbor, um, you know, who's so progressive, but is against public housing, seemingly affordable housing, right? There's the affordable housing that, there's an assumption of who's going to move into that affordable housing. And then you're, you know, you're re reacting to that and, and who says, yeah. you know, oh, there, you know, and, and yeah. And so, so, you know, these, these situations, you know, really create divisiveness and, and the divisiveness builds and people stop listening mm -hmm. um, and they're stuck in their own lanes and they can't go further. It's frustrating, of course. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's one, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit in despair about it, just because, again, it, I think I mentioned in a prior podcast, what one of the things that I, I volunteered for for many years, uh, almost a decade, was to be a um, an administrator, basically the lead admin on an online forum that was really for mm. free speech. I mean, that was kind of what it was about. With a kind, you know, with the kind of idea in the back of my head about these sort of ideal of the Enlightenment coffee house, you know, and the ideal of the Enlightenment coffee house was a place where people could come and argue anything. That was the that was the kind of place it was supposed to be. Online, but online, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was that. I mean, that was kind of the thought in the back of my head. It was for another organization, but that's you know neither here nor there. But the point is that you know, it became clear pretty quickly that that's really not a very likely thing to happen. In other words, what happens is that you get a very small number of trolls, basically, who take all the air out of the room. Hmm. And so the only way to really support something like free speech is to be very willing to shut people down if they're, if they're trolling. Um, so you need a heavy hand. I mean, yeah. not that heavy, of course, but... <laughs> But you end up having to do that kind of thing, and you're not always. I mean, you're you're doing your best, but you know it's not possible to do that kind of thing in a way that makes everybody happy. Because what it is to be a troll is is a matter of opinion in certain. I mean, in all cases, but you know, in some cases, it's going to be. You know, there's always in in between cases, and you're going to have to make decisions uh, that that are not going to make people happy kick people off who some people like, but other people think is being a troll. And, you know, you, you as the administrator or a moderator, you have to, you know, you, you don't have the, the, the luxury of sort of letting other people decide. Right, you have to right. decide. Yeah. So here's the question. Mm. In the Buddha's day, what would have been a troll? 
Well, it's a good question. I mean, the Buddha did have, I mean, there are a couple, there are not many, but a couple of examples in early Buddhism of the Buddha's, the Buddha and the Sangha having to deal with people that they wanted out. Yeah. Or that were being difficult. I uh, actually did a video on that. You know, the Buddha, I mean, this is one of the things that's uh, clear about him is that he was opposed to violence uh, of any kind. Uh, on the other hand, when it was com- when it came to dealing with people who were, you know, were not leaving the sangha but should, then they would, you know, they would literally, you know, sort of pick them up and move them out, you know. <laughs> and when it came to people who were difficult, there was advice in the in the suttas about going with five hundred monks to deal with somebody, you know. Mm. I mean, not to not to not right. to rough them up because there was no violence, but but you would go with five hundred monks because. Safety in numbers. <laughs> Safety in numbers. Maybe it yeah, was. Maybe it, makes it was an impression. And maybe it was supposed to be intimidating in a sense yeah. that you know yeah. we're here in large numbers. Um, but it's to say that there's no way to escape this kind of thing. Um, yeah. And and there's you know the, the other aspect that I think we shouldn't forget is that Buddhism thrived and was able to survive in an atmosphere at which there were people in power who had police, the equivalent of police forces, I mean, you know, armed folks who could keep the peace, or quote-unquote the peace. I mean, obviously, they were not, you know, democratically elected, you know, enlightened, uh, you know, people. They were were kings. (laughs) But, you know, that sort of made things easier. Sure. For sure. I was was actually thinking of those instances where yeah, you know, that's a troll in, the, in those, you know, in, in a Buddhist troll, a, a troll of the Buddha, I should say, you know, are people that, well, who just didn't agree with him and wanted to, you know, say so. And, and, and yet he would listen. Oh, yeah. Well, that's different. Yeah. He would certainly argue or, or listen to people yeah. who he disagreed with. Yeah. But he, and, and he, what's so interesting in those, in those examples, you know, is he listened and then he would like throw their teaching back at them. And ask them a question, which is like brilliant teaching and brilliant way of of refuting, you know, a, a something. And that's what doesn't happen, say, in our political atmosphere. Mm. It's like nobody says, well, or they do say, but but people don't listen. You know, it's like if if you cut this out, you know, or if you make this ruling, how is it going to impact your neighbor here? Right. You know, it doesn't, it's like well, that doesn't. Those kind of discussions. At least they're never seen in public. And when somebody takes a stance, they refuse to kind of change that stance. Mm-hmm. And so when we hold to a, and this of course gets into fixed views, um, which can get in the way, of course, of wise speech, you know, because we, if we have a fixed view, we almost by implication don't listen <laughs> because our view is fixed. Why should we listen? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think. As much as as the speeches, uh, our speeches uh, at issue, so is our listening. I often <clears throat> talk about, and I probably mentioned this in the last podcast we did about speech, is you know listening from silence and speaking from silence, and <clears throat> that's hard, mm-hmm. you know, because generally speaking, when we're listening, we're ha- we're having a conversation to ourselves, or we're so heavily identified, or so heavily opposed, or so wanting to fix or whatever we want to do, we're, we're caught in that and we can't listen as a result or listen fully. Right. And if we speak from silence, 
that allows space for some truth to arise. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, the, the practice of insight dialogue, which was developed by um, my friend Gregory Kramer, wonderful, wonderful teacher. You know, the, the first instruction is pause. And the next instruction is listen deeply. Mm. And what are we listening for? We're listening for what is true in this moment. You know, what is really arising in this moment? And so, you know, that's that's something that doesn't happen usually. Mm-hmm. And it's a real skill and a really important part of practice because what we see when we when we even just when we're meditating in silence, the stories that the mind unravels continually and how those stories are generally not true or not true of what's really happening in that moment. And yet we're reacting to those stories. In, I mean, the mind is reacting to those stories, you know. And so if that's true when we're sitting in silence, we can imagine, you know, that when we're not in silence, you know, how those stories are continually happening in the mind. And, you know, we act to, you know, we react to them or they're in the way when we're listening to somebody else. And so really, you know, learning to, to really stop and listen, not only to the other, but to what you are perhaps about to say is, is a very important part of practice. And, you know, you would think, right, that with uh, online communication, which is generally written, not always, but generally written, there's like a little extra space to check and to think and to, to actually like consider, you know, reflect on what you've written. Mm-hmm. But most people don't take that moment to reflect. Yeah, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> and that's the unfortunate thing. And, and that's created so many problems as a result. Um, I mean, I'm not on Twitter. And these days, I certainly have no intention of being on Twitter, given who, what's been happening. I'm barely on Facebook. But I certainly get emails sometimes that, you know, rile me. And then I'll, you know, write one back. And hopefully won't send it, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, because it'll just be a react. It'll be a reaction instead of a response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, if we spoke, if if we recognize that when we speak, and it's like, is this the appropriate thing to say? Is it is it truthful? Is it even kindly? Mm-hmm. You know, even if we disagree with somebody, is it possible to do it in a kindly way? Yeah. Of course it is, but. When we're stuck in reactive mode, it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, well, this is one of the things that I mean that the Buddha does give advice about um, correcting somebody, mm. and talks about how it should come from a place of of loving kindness. That you know, before you before you go to you know correct somebody or chastise them, because it does it sometimes sure. need to be done. Yeah, I mean, you have to find the right place and time. That's one thing, um, which is difficult enough. I, you know, you might not want to do it in public, or you know, maybe you do want to do it in public. Depends on the case, and then you have to do it with with the right kind of heart, which is also really tough. Yeah. I think. I mean, it's it's like these are some of the most, uh, to me, the most difficult practices because they're sort of public practices that you're having with other people. So it's it's much more difficult. There's no. It's not like there's. It's not like there is a perfect way to do it. I mean, at least not. 
at least not not clear to me anyway. I mean, in other words, maybe the Buddha would have <laughs> seen it, but for me, it's sort of like you're you're swimming in this sort of sea of maybe this is the right way to do it, maybe this is not the right way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. If you come back at somebody trying to come from a place of of kindness, is is a great place to start yeah. if you can manage it. But it's oftentimes you forget. You know, these you're in the moment. And you forget you forget the advice. This is you know we were talking the other day about mindfulness being a memory practice. You know you have to sort of remember. Uh, Absolutely. Gosh. Absolutely. Remember to stop. Yeah. yeah. I think what's interesting. I'm just getting back into the political arena. I you know I was just as you were talking, I was thinking about. So there there was a member of Congress who was actually a serious mindfulness practitioner, and that was Congressman Tim Ryan That's right. in Ohio, and and he ran for Senate against uh, what's his name. Uh, Oh, uh, J.D. Vance? Yeah. And, you know, they had some pretty hot, hot debates. And Ryan uses very strong language, but it it always comes out in a way that is is seemingly, you know, not trying to make an enemy of the other person, Mm. you know, but just like, you know, he, he, you know, he gets, he gets angry. And you can listen to some of his speeches in Congress, and they're really angry. Mm-hmm. But still, there's something of heart in that anger. It's like coming from a, a different place. Mm-hmm. And he's not a Buddhist. I mean, he's just a mindfulness practitioner. He's actually Catholic, mm-hmm. or he was brought up in a Catholic home. And 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 you know, after the election was over, his campaign was deemed to be you know the best campaign, even though he lost. Mm. Just because he wasn't creating more divisiveness, mm. uh, he was just speaking truth. And and pointing things out, and even when he lost, he you know graciously lost. And I think his his words were something like, you know, it's a privilege to accept the results of the election or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the privilege we have in this country to be able to. You know, and that's a rare thing. Yeah, uh, you know, there are certainly others who have been in in, in the political arena who who have that kind of authenticity but they're few and far between it seems these Mm -hmm. days you know because you know you you don't get on the news that way necessarily (laughs) right yeah i mean the concern that i have is that there's a lot of turn towards uh violence particularly on one uh, at least as i perceive it on one side yeah uh, of this uh united states debate as if you like between two political parties you know where people who either have killed people or want to kill people on the other side or, or, you know, are being at least potentially, you know, let free or pardoned. And, or right now there's the, the, the claim that both presidential candidates on one side are making that they will pardon everybody who's right. And, you know, I mean, I have read quite a lot about, you know, the 1930s in Germany and, you know, including some very, very long books about how all that started. And mm. there are similarities. Now, I mean, For sure. who knows yeah. where this is going to go. Yeah. Part of, you know, my experience having, you know, on this online forum is this, this awareness that, you know, it's not always a both sides thing. You know, oftentimes there are just people who are just outside the, the you know, who are not willing to, to run by the normal rules of debate, you know, right. who, who want violence who want you know shut everything down and if you if you don't deal with them in a way that you know sort of keeps them out of the mainstream 
you know, things can get very bad. Yeah. Well, we see it. Yeah. For sure. So, and that's, you know, makes the, the question of dialogue all the more important, but at the same time, it really sort of derails the whole question of dialogue because once, once somebody gets into a position of, of influence who really isn't interested in dialogue, then it can make everything a lot. Yeah. I mean, it makes, di it can make dialogue simply unimportant where, you know, it doesn't matter if you're having dialogue. Right. Because, and, and, and you know. at that point, the people who are following that person stop listening anyway. Yeah. I mean, to anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, all we can do is contribute to a healthy dialogue, yeah. contribute to healthy speech, contribute mm -hmm. to healthy, healthy listening. And, you know, in those moments, <laughs> I had, I had a, something come up at a, I was giving a talk at New York Insight the other day and I, I, I said some, I wouldn't call them unskillful words. I would call them truthful words about capitalism, mm. you know, particular person after my I finished the talk and somebody said well but capitalism made this country great and you know I said okay I apologize I wasn't clear I I, I wrote back and I, I mean I, I spoke back and said uh, I meant unbridled capitalism you know which kind of quieted the person down but uh, mm. it was you know what I I could have gone much further on that and said well did it really make this country great? <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it did a lot of things, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure it made it great. Um, made some people great. But uh, anyway, that's another discussion. Um, Very complicated issue. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Needless to say, the Buddha was not a capitalist. Um, well, it would have been an <laughs> anachronistic to use the word yes, back then. Yes, that's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, let's see what kind of like uh, speech we get back from this podcast, and, yeah. and uh, please do can, let, you let, know, leave comments. Feel free to leave some comments. We really enjoy getting them. Yeah, no trolls, please. But uh, but anything else, right? You can agree with us or disagree with us. Yeah. That's fine. And uh, while you're there, you can buy us some coffee. We really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I have to go get another cup myself. <laughs> and um, until next time, thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. Okay. For the great talk. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on your podcast directory. And please check us out at digginthedharma.com where you can leave a comment, buy us a coffee, and even become a member. You can find out more about me, John Aaron, at johnaaron.net and Doug at dougsdharma.com.